Welcome to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? with your host, Jeff Stein. This program really does uncover the sometime myth that all are innocent until proven guilty. The truth is that many innocent people are found guilty of a crime that they did not commit. We discuss the judicial system, its flaws, and where it could be made better. Now, here is Jeff Stein. Good morning, and welcome to Episode 3 of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? As we know, there are many wrongful arrests and convictions in the United States, and our purpose of this show is to address things that can be fixed and how we will talk to victims of wrongful arrests and convictions, witnesses, people involved in the judicial process, and try to create an understanding that our current judicial judicial system is not truth and justice for all. Anyone can become a victim to the judicial system because of false or coerced statements, ineffective assistance of counsel, lackadaisical police work, prosecutorial misconduct, jailhouse snitches, deceitful witnesses, and even dishonest expert witnesses. Today, I am super excited. We have Jeffrey Walker as a guest to share his journey of being a Philadelphia narcotics detective and the corruption that has plagued the police department for many years. There's a lot to talk about, so join us for a jam-packed episode of Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Uh, it's been a long journey for me to this point. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to, to give my uh, for the public to hear what I have to say. This It's refreshing for them to hear, finally hear the truth about the, uh, the taboo secrets of the Philadelphia Police Department, which is rotates to other police departments around the country. Excellent. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so excited to get started and, and really uh, want to welcome you to the show and appreciate you taking the time to, to join us. So, Jeffrey, I, I know you, you grew up in Philadelphia and then you became a police officer and later a detective with the Philadelphia Police Department. Can you give our listeners just a, a brief description of your childhood and what it was like to become a Philadelphia police officer growing up uh, in the streets of Philadelphia? Sure, I'm going to correct you on the detective part. Uh, narcotics officers are do the exact same job as detectives, but they don't carry that title. Uh, it was always a conversation about making a narcotics investigator a detective, but that that situation never uh, trans you know went forward. Okay. But I can go into telling you about my uh, childhood. I grew up in West Philadelphia in the area of Overbrook. Uh, Overbrook where it's just called, you know, through the neighborhood kids called it the hill. Uh, Commonly it was with the guys who may be listening to Hilltop. I went to Overbrook High School in the, uh, from 84 to 87. Uh, A lot of my friends who grew up in the neighborhood, you know, we never had fathers, you know, we all, mostly the males uh, leaned on each other to, for support and and guidance and different conversations about life uh, events and stuff like that. as the early as I got well into high school, I started seeing the uh, crack epidemic come around, which was amazing to me because you know a lot of my friends were selling drugs now. You know they were selling crack cocaine because it was a lucrative business. Uh, you know, and from that point, I started seeing you know the more attractive black females mainly becoming drug addicts. You know, in my eyes, it was like the night of the living dead. You know, uh, where my firsthand view of what crack cocaine does to the human body. Uh, and then it got to a point where it affected my family. Uh, my uncle, my two of my aunts, my uncle was a military man. 
and uh, to watch him uh, go to nothing and watching drugs try take over his life affected my life as well as my uh, two aunts. Uh, I made the choice in 1989 to become a police officer. Uh, growing up as in the black community, you know, it was never a relationship with the police department. Uh, again, I had my encounters with the police where I was sitting around with friends and, and you know, a cop would pull up and, and tell us to leave the area because that's what he wanted us to do. And he, even the fact that we were sitting on our neighbor's steps where the neighbor had to normally come out and say, excuse me, officer, they're here, they're good kids, they're not doing anything, you know, for, before the officer decided to move forward. Within all of that, uh, the crack epidemic forced me to become a police officer. I became a police officer when I was 19 years old. Uh, once I came through the police academy, I was excited, you know. Uh, I was, you know, in a career, finally, because a lot of my friends at the time were, you know, working small-time jobs, if not the ones that wasn't selling drugs. You know, I was, they looked at me uh, as, you know, someone important and uh, someone wanted to be just like me. But once I came through the police academy, uh, five months of the police academy, I uh, was stationed to the, uh, the Ninth District off of uh, 20th and Pennsylvania. Uh, I walked the Christmas beat. From there, uh, I started seeing, you know, how, you know, I was on the, other, I was on the side where people looked at me important. I felt important. I was young, you know. And uh, once I went to the, once I, the detail was over for me to, from the 9th district, I went to the 16th district, which is located at down the bottom in West Philadelphia. And that's when I had my first taste of reality with the real true drug world was the eyes of a police officer was, where I watched uh, Mel sell drugs on the corner, uh, junkies uh, uh, in dark alleyways, abandoned houses, getting high off crack cocaine. And uh, I knew what I remember why I joined the police force. I joined the police force to fight drugs, not just to become a cop and tell people to do. I seen with drug how drugs affected my personal life. So I wanted to do something about it. Uh, you know, when I was actually working, I decided to work with a, uh, a veteran officer who was highly decorated. Uh, uh, he was very intimidated. He was six, three. Uh, he was he carried. Uh, everyone carried nice sticks. This guy carried a, a long cable wire wrapped in black tape and he wasn't afraid to use it. And when you seen him work, he was very impressive, you know, and me mm -hmm. being the, at the time, 20 years old, you know, watch, from watching cop shows and stuff like that. You know, I was one of them guys now, you know what I'm saying? I was part of the team. Right. And, and when he caught down to show me how to do drugs, you know, the first corruption I actually seen him do is where, he had sources of information, which was other drug addicts, female drug addicts, and he would meet them in uh, side streets or alleyways. You know, we would actually pull the police car down. And I watched him give them drugs for information. And I looked at him like, what? The first thing that came to my mind was, what part of the game is this? And, you know, he, you know, me being young, you know, when you're a rookie cop, you know to shut up and just listen. And, you know, if you ask a question, you know, you wait for the answer. So, you know, at the point I was shocked when I seen him do it. So 
the the, uh, the person he gave the drugs to, you know, they told him to listen. They give him the drug information. He'll go around the corner. He will lock up the drug dealer. I'm right. I'm right. I'm, I'm nervous at this time, the beginning stages of this. And, you know, he said, listen, kid, only thing you got to do is just lock the guy up. Let me do the paperwork. So at the time where we were processing all drug arrests down at uh, 8th and Race, which is the police headquarters, has always been the police headquarters on the third floor, uh, he would then show me how to write up the paperwork. Now, uh, I've learned how to use the word articulation. Articulation in the police department is a, a hidden word for lying. It's story writing. It's fabrication of a story that turns reasonable suspicion to probable cause. All police officers do it. You know, uh, you have to write a story to affect the arrest. Not saying all, correct my statement, I'm not saying all police officers lie. I'm saying a great minimum know the phrase articulation. Uh, he, sh he showed me how to write up the paperwork, uh, taking reasonable suspicion of probable cause. And reasonable suspicion, if a guy's standing on a corner just doing nothing, he's, suspicion is he's standing on a drug corner. Uh, you jump out on a guy, you know, information given him from the, uh, the source information, which was the snitch, that the drugs were in the alleyway. All you got to do is grab the guy. I would lock him up. He walked to the alleyway. He would grab the drugs, put them in the car. When it's time to process the paperwork, his paperwork was consist of uh, driving down the street, watched the male engaged in narcotics transactions with uh, several unknown black males or black females. Uh, upon approaching these individuals, they took off running. You grabbed the dealer, you went to the alleyway, confiscated the drugs. That was it. Wow. So let me let me just back up for one second. So you you grew up on the streets and and you witnessed this and you witnessed a lot of your your friends go the other route. You know, when you went into the police academy at really an, an early age at nineteen and, and learned a lot. I, I can only imagine like. The difference from when you when you began the academy to when you graduated, how that probably changed you um, just from attending the police academy. But I know a lot of my clients are obviously incarcerated or wrongfully convicted or, or maybe not. They, they may have been um, legitimately convicted of a crime. We're providing criminal defense. And and I've I've seen so many. And at a, an early age. In, in some of the inner city neighborhoods in Philadelphia, it's unfortunate, but people, a lot of the people, and just so our listeners around the world know this or can understand this, is they grow up in a, um, a poor economy, not a lot of money, uh, lower income, and then they see that you know their friends uh, start bringing home a lot of money, and these drug dealers you know, selling on the streets can make I mean, you, you can correct me on this, but, you know, just, just as a really the, the first line of, of not, I'm not talking about the big time drug dealers. I'm just talking about the guys selling on the corner. They can make ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a week or a month, and they're not going to get that, you know, working at McDonald's or anywhere else. I mean, all of a sudden their families are poor and now all of a sudden they have all this money that they can buy fancy cars and nice TVs and things like that. So people need to, you know, either they go that direction or yeah. they try to go another direction. And, you know, whether it's the military, whether it's law enforcement or, or schooling and college and try to crawl their way out and fight their way out. Is that a kind of a fair assessment of the inner city in Philadelphia growing yes, up there? Pretty much. So or you have, uh, 
young kids who are fatherless and mothers are strong back then. We were talking about before the crack epidemic came along. There's a lot of single black mothers that was very strong. You know, they worked two jobs. Like my mother worked two jobs, you know, and uh, she was very, you know, she was a strong Christian background and she made sure we were doing what we were supposed to do. We had doing what we were supposed to be doing when she was gone where the neighbors looked out for us. Back then, the neighbors looked out for all the kids in the neighborhood. And the, the, the parents reported to the neighbors when, you know, how's my child doing, you know, stuff like that. When the neighbors, when was the surrogate parent, where it says, when you went and did something in that street and Mr. John or Mrs. Francis heard you say something, they'll yell off their porch or yell for the one who would say, I heard you what you said. I'll call your mother or your father and I'll tell them what you said. And, you know, the kid also knew he was always being watched by somebody. So, you know, it was it was even though I grew up in a middle class neighborhood, we were always close knitted. But when, the you know, it was always drugs around, like a lot of guys that, that I didn't know I heard of growing up, they sold marijuana and those guys still had jobs. Uh, cocaine was not a drug that was it was it was it was more of a, it wasn't a black drug. It was a drug. That if you a black person was on cocaine, he had money. OK, uh, the drug of choice from when I was growing up was marijuana. You know, my uncle smoked it. My aunt smoked it, you know. Um, but when crack cocaine came along, you have that drug dealer with that nice chain, you know, the, the money showing you the nice car. It's attraction to a kid who, whose mother is working two jobs and this kid has nothing to do. And it's influence, a strong influence has come from his peers is actually you know, enticed by what they see and they're in their selling, selling drugs. It only takes one or two to influence the rest. You know, that's how you get your, your drug organizations on the corners. You know, a lot of these guys, they use these young guys to, to peddle the drugs on the corner because they don't want to take the chance. And they know one guy goes to jail, they get two or three waiting in line to take his place. That's how it began yep. from the beginning. And exactly what you're describing can fit probably so many people. And, and as you're talking about that, what comes to my mind, and, and then we, we can move on. But I was on the, I, I worked on the defense, defense, defense team for Kabani Savage. And so for many of our listeners, they know Kabani Savage and who he is. And he came from a really a nice family. He had uh, several sisters. His mother is a really sweet woman. And his father passed away at an early age. And I believe Kabani was about 12 or 13 years old. And one of his one of his wishes on his deathbed was for Kabani to be the man of the family, the the head, the man of the household. And so he was a turning point in in his career. You know, at 13 years old, he always that's when he began selling drugs, and he worked the streets at that point and and went you know that lifestyle. But his mom, like you said, you know, worked numerous jobs, tried to support their family. And it just takes, you know, that just that missing link or, um, you know, that one bad choice to, to go in that totally different direction. It takes boredom. Like, I don't mind. You're going to get into trouble. There's nothing to do. You got people coming around you with a lot of money and you want to get make money to get a job. Not really get a job, but actually make money to get a car, to leave the neighborhood. You know, you get the girls, you know, women are always behind the money. And they just want a, a, a lavish lifestyle, you know, at that level, you know, I jokingly call it ghetto fabulous, you know, you know, this is enough money just to get you to a point where you look important amongst your peers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So 
I, I'm sort of surprised to learn how quickly you learned about the corruption within the department. You were only on the job for a year or two. How long has it been going on in Philadelphia? You know, can you speak from how it gets passed on? I mean, it, it, it didn't just happen. It didn't just happen, mm. you know, in 2013. I mean, things things kind of get passed on. But can you just talk about Certainly. what your uh, thoughts are and how long it was going on? First of all, uh, corruption has been around long before me. Uh, corruption has many names. It's called the gang, the white man's gang, the beast. You know, there's many names that people use the term of corruption. It's a, it's a, a taboo way of life in the department. Uh, it's not just the cops. It stretches from the DA's office to the judges to the private attorneys who sell their clients out, who's working with the police department, narcotics officers, to, you know, there's a lot of people involved in it. So a lot of people focus on just the cops. You're at the beginning stages of a lot of things that goes on in the behind the scenes. Corruption is a lot, it's a way of life for a lot of people from different works of life and the, and the law enforcement community agree upon. Uh, it's control. For a police officer to report corruption, it's hard, even when he wants to do the right thing, because if he goes to a supervisor, he might be corrupt. If that supervisor is not corrupt, he might go to, that supervisor may report it to the captain. He might get, might be corrupt. So the corruption is a, is, a, is a secret way of life of a lot of different people. And you don't know who's corrupt until you're involved in that work or what's going on. And, and when I became, a, when I was a young police officer, I found that the, the way was when I turned corrupt was, you know, being, being so young, just like I was no different from that kid who grew up in the block who was influenced by that, that drug dealer with the, you know, that glavish life. I was influenced by my calls and what I seen police officers do to affect a, a job, you know, and, and, it, and it was enticing. You know, it wasn't about stealing the money at the time. It was about locking guys up that I considered to be urban terrorists that was destroying my own people. You know, and that and I was I fell right into the root of that, you know, being so, so young. But on other occasions where you have police officers who are forced to either get involved in the misconduct or you have police officers who are a great many of them turn a blind eye and turning a blind eye means, hey, man, I see it, but I don't want to be no parts of it. I'm going to look this way. And then you have some police officers who just can't take the heat. They get, you know, these these guys are like the older guys who already have careers prior to them coming on a the job. They end up leaving going back to their careers, their prior careers. But for me being a young police officer, this was the only thing I had to feed myself. And this is something I wanted to do. And at the time I thought I was doing the right thing. And then and it grew. Once you bite that apple of the corruption, it's gonna grow. You know, everything starts out with lying. And then you're gonna start out with the abuse. You know, where, where I seen in, the younger, in my younger days as a rookie police officer, the abuse. Guys would get hit with, you know, I came from the revolver days, you know, in the early 90s where you got pistol whip, you got hit with Motorola radios, you got hit with slapjacks, you know, cops would beat you to the inch of your life, you know, to the point where to affect or arrest. And then so there was a lot of slips and falls. It was a lot of uneven sidewalks where guys, you know, the articulation was when you cracked the guy's head open, he, you pursued the guy, he slipped off a a uh, high end of a curb and he hit his head on the sidewalk or the street, you know. So, you know, these are the things I learned at an early age, how to protect yourself and how to stick to your story, even to the end. 
You know, wow. a police officer is going to stick to his story to the end, and he's going to use it as justification. So on top of that, you're going to have corrupt police officers going to support him, too. Right. So did you get involved with some of the things that you were you were later charged with when you were in uniform, or did that happen when you joined the narcotics team? Well, when I first bit the, uh, I call it the apple corruption, uh, my mentor was arrested by the FBI. Uh, he was set up by his source of information. Ironically, at the end of my story, I was set up by my source of information. Uh, he was set up by a group of dealers who found out she was talking to him. And they gave her ultimative. Either we're going to take you out or you're going to cooperate with us and get rid of this guy because he's costing us a lot of money. Uh, when he was finally arrested by the FBI, you know, uh, I learned from other police officers talking. These were the exact same police officers that I knew was doing corrupt things. Another thing about the police department, you know, we were one of the biggest hypocrites, you know, guys who point fingers at everybody else, but they'd be doing the exact same thing. So, you know, once I was sad when he was arrested. And once I tried, you know, I was on the street by myself and I, you know, trying to, pull, you know, patrol my sector. These same deals that had my, my mentor arrested, you know, they were making jokes, you know, laughing at us. 911 is a joke. And, you know, and, and when you jump out and chase these guys and one guy would run and, and the guys would laugh at you, it was, it was a big joke. So, you know, the, the night that I decided to take something was when I seen a dealer standing on a corner and he was slipping. He saw me at the last minute. He did a transaction and I was already on him. Uh, he ran from the corner. He ran into a, uh, a house, which ended up being a stash house. And uh, I had to fight with him in the kitchen. I'm very, you know, I could defend myself. I learned from fighting since I was a young kid. That's what we did. And I was, I was beating him. And uh, once I placed the handcuffs on him, I looked up on top of the freezer, refrigerator, and it was a large freezer bag full of money. And that, I never seen that much money in my life. You know, and that enticed me real quick. It's the anger of this person that deserved the money. I was going to do better with the money than he could ever do with the money. And I decided to take that money. And from that point on, my life changed. It's never been the same after that. You know, when I tell people, the listeners, is everything I've done on this job wasn't all bad. You know, as a highly decorated police officer, you know, the, the percentage of good things I've done was 75%. But that 25% was bad, you know, from robberies to, you know, I worked with a lot of bad guys that was considered, you know, you didn't even look at them as police officers, the stuff that we were doing in the situation. So once I took that money, my life changed. It changed. And I was 24 years old at that time. Wow. You know, so. When, how old were you? When you went to the narcotics unit? Uh, I went to the narcotics unit in 2000. I was working, before I went to the narcotics unit, I was working out the infamous five squad. If people know what that means, it was, uh, uh, it was back in the 80s where it was the a group of officers working in a tactical, district tactical unit that was doing corrupt things and doing the exact same thing I was arrested for. I was just tested, you know, when they reformed that squad again, it was I was the next generation of corruption. You know, I was uh, I just fell right into the ranks. I was already I already took money. I was already lying on paperwork and I had a partner uh, at the time and we was misusing sorts of information 
and uh, that was helping us with jobs. We were riding the back of his van and we were picking guys off left and right. We were locking up somebody every day and uh, we were articulation our arrests. So once uh, uh, we were doing that so well, you know, I had a contract killing on my life where it was foiled by two uh, drug dealers. Uh, and how that got exposed, the money guy of the organization knew they were serious about killing us. And uh, he came to the police department and he told and exposed the plot. And those individuals was arrested. Uh, result of that arrest, the captain felt us, listen, guys, I'm going to take you out of the district tactical team. I'm going to put you in narcotics. Uh, when I came to narcotics, I came to the, we both came to the narcotics bureau. Uh, my partner uh, wanted to go to the narcotics field unit. Uh, he went ahead of me because he had two young kids, twins that was born. I let him go before me. And uh, I came following behind him six months later in 2000. Hmm. Once I came to narcotics, I got I was in the big leagues now. I was the articulation became more common, you know, and, and it, you know, you learn more about the lies that people use and the officers use. And, and, and the narcotics was very secretive. They I was it was like the secret force of the police department and they didn't really socialize with the patrol officers, you know, everything was hidden, even from getting district control numbers, which is uh, district uh, incident numbers. You know, they did. Everything was always com- confines. We I mean, they never gave a location out. And uh, when I had a chance to work with these officers, uh, we always had a leader. of was always a leader of the group. And and I found out that leader of the group father was a police officer. His father was indicted for misconduct. Uh he did time. He kept his mouth shut. His people that he saved looked after him. And what happened after that was, you know, when they looked at him, he came to the narcotics field unit and he basically picked up where the father left off at. And, you know, from 2000, we worked with a group of guys and we were, you know, we were getting numbers. We were the highest producing uh, squad in the whole uh, building. And one thing that if you, while you were in narcotics, it's all fuel by numbers, the body count, the confiscation of drugs, money, and weapons. Uh, when a large amounts of money, as we call it, the budget comes in narcotics, it's supposed to be divided upon several squads. Well, what the supervisors do is they, they basically play different squads against each other. The, most squad, the, the squad that produces the most arrests get the most money. So now you have incentive. The more people I lock up, the more money I'm going to make. And mind you, you're, you're, you know, you're already corrupt. You are still in court time. You know, you're getting paid overtime during investigations, even when you're at home, when a supervisor comes in and say, you did a good job for the day. And the supervisor says, uh, it's 12 o'clock guys. Uh, what do you guys want to get paid to? Uh, you always got to agree guy to bunch. Oh, sorry, pay us at six in the morning. All right, no problem. You got it. Uh, if you get into something, just give me a call and I'll come back and I'll change the time on the uh, SNR. These things were common practice in the narcotics field. Wow. It was money. It's a money-making machine. I mean, narcotics is about, I learned very quickly, narcotics wasn't about, you know, making a difference in the community. It was the money. Yeah, you're dealing with officers that was frustrated and saying, listen, I'm never going to stop the drug war. I'm just going to make this money while I can. So I, I know on numerous cases that I worked at in Philadelphia, there was, officers, whether it was narcotics or even on the homicide detectives, that they were suspended. There's, there's e- even 
and I know you're aware of this, there's a list that Philadelphia District Attorney puts out that lists Philadelphia police officers that are not allowed to be called to testify because, and the, the reasons vary, but because they're, they're being indicted, uh, they've already got caught lying on the stand, uh, they've lied at, you know, in their affidavits, very, various different things. Do you believe that, kind of a twofold question, one, it sounds like this is going on in, in other units besides narcotics, Almost because people, people go from, you know, the, the, the guys go from, you know, one unit to another, but the ADAs, are they aware of what, what's going on in the streets? I mean, do, do they kind of turn a blind eye, look the other way with that articulation that they know that there's no way this happened, but you know, I'm going to look the other way, or, or is that something you can't really answer to? I, or, can, or I, I can explain, I can explain that question in detail, how it works. Okay. When you have a narcotics officer, he, you know, he develops a relationship not only with the DA's office, he developed a relationship with the judges. He's always in court every single day. So it's like, you know, you see the exact same people every day. When you go to these drug hearing courtrooms, you have these interns who are DAs who haven't passed the bar yet. They see these smooth talking narcotics cops come in, white or black, that come in there and they're attracted to these guys. Sometimes they develop relationships with these guys. You know, we you know, we we party with the DAs and stuff like that. We go to defense attorney parties, you know, all of this is called networking, you know, and, and again, it's about making money. You know, you gotta know the people that you can you can influence is going to actually move in the direction you want them to move in at. You know, you can have control of what the situation is, and that's how a smart narcotic cop does. He develops a relationship with the people he deals with every single day. So when you have a narcotics cop uh, doing multiple warrants on a week, you know, you have a relationship with the DA's office. It only takes for that DA to make it to the charging unit. Once that DA make it to the charging unit, he have a relationship, a solid relationship with the district attorney he's dealing with. Again, it takes one to influence many. Oh, don't worry about him. You know, that's my friend, such and such, or that's my boyfriend. You know, they, they're human beings like everybody else. They talk. And they like they slide us slide us paperwork through. And once they you know they prove the fictitious warrants that looks the same, exactly the same, because a cop always does the exact same thing. They, we have a model. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Leave it alone. You know. And 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 the whole thing is this: the exact same lies going from over and over with the black bags sitting twenty feet away, the golf ball size objects, this concerned citizen. First of all, concerned citizen that does not give an officer detail information. That's somebody who's involved in the organization. These officers use these words to to make their, their warrants stronger. And, you know, these are tactics, part of articulation that they put in their paperwork that makes their probable cause, again, from reasonable suspicion to probable cause, the key is to affect the arrest, do the confiscation, steal money if you can. If not, you don't steal money all the time because it's like when you steal, it's like put money in the bank. You don't want to steal all the time. A guy who steals all the time is going to eventually get caught. You want to steal at least 25% of the time, okay? Because when someone makes an accusation, if you're doing some misconduct, they're going to pick up all the good jobs you did. You know, these officers who are corrupt as well as you as supervisors, they're going to back you. Like, listen, this guy's a highly decorated police officer. There's no way in the world he did this, okay? And it's, it's hard to break that nut. So, and then once you deal, we have relationships with not just the DA's office, we have relationships with the private attorneys, who sell their clients down the road, you know? And 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 I've seen her and seen witness conversation with members of my unit 
with high-profile defense attorneys in Philadelphia where they say, my client has information doing side deals and say, we don't want you to show up for court. And this is outside the DA's office. Wow. Okay, this is what I'm telling you is the truth and it's found to be true by the federal government. But the thing with them saying, when they find it to be true and proven is another situation because you have law enforcement against law enforcement. These guys do the exact same studying as the ones trying to catch them. It's like a true war right now going on. That's why when you say the, the justice system is corrupt, it's broken. It's been broken for a long period of time. But I've learned the hard way when I finally went to prison to sit and still to see what I actually was doing to not just myself, my own people. I was part of something that is way bigger than me. I, I think, Jeffrey, my, my biggest disappointment is that we don't have two hours for this episode because we're, we're, we're surely going to need to have you come back. Almost. Because there's, there's so much to talk about and you're so interesting and, it, and it's so informative to let the listeners and, and even me hear, you know, what's going on in, in within that, 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 code, that blue line of, of trust and it's, silence. It's called, a, it's called a blue code of silence. The cop never yep. tells on a cop. Right. And before we leave, I wanted the viewers to listen to me and listen to me clearly. There's a new day coming. Uh, Philadelphia is the ground zero reform. You have a corrupt cop who is going to tell every secret. And I put my life on the line with this one because I can be killed. I'm willing to bypass all of that to, to bring the truth out because I've seen a lot of things going on on both sides of the fence. And people are screaming for the truth. And I'm going to give it to them. Let's, before we take a break in about five minutes, let's talk real quick or, you know, in the next five minutes, um, what were you doing when you were first arrested? And I believe it was 2013. And what were you charged with? I was charged with a Hobbs Act robbery. I was using a source of information. My whole thing was uh, I put money in the drug dealer's hand. Instead of you shooting that guy because that guy did something bad to you, you work with me, I make sure you get some money out of it. And then he goes to jail. Uh, I was working with a guy who had an issue with another drug dealer. And uh, I found out later he was an FBI informant working with my own group of guys in the FBI. I was actually a scapegoat because the FBI was looking at, you know, my team and they needed someone to go. And I was the one chosen to go because of what was going on. Disputes was was going on in the squad. Um, I was arrested at 50 at Early morning hours on May the 21st, I'll never forget it, May the 21st, 2013, coming out of a stash house with 15,000 cash and five pounds of hydro marijuana at $4,500 a pound. And I was actually going to have my guy resell that. We're going to break the money off as well, split the money. This is something we were, I was customized to do uh, throughout my time in the narcotics field, working with my infamous narcotic squad uh when i was arrested they gave me a choice i was saddened because i was true to the cold blue of silence and to find out my own team that i knew for years set me up and sent me to jail you know i was hurt you know i cried you know what i'm saying because it was something that we just don't tell them even when the fbi was coming to me and asking me questions i was spinning them you know what i mean regardless of what situation i had with my guys 
I would never tell on another cop. But, you know, they gave me a choice. And, you know, and it was beyond the cold blue of sounds at that point. It was about, you know, spiritually finding God again and understanding what he truly wanted me to do. So at that point, you decided to cooperate with the authorities completely. Yes. You know, it was a spiritual thing to me at that point because all, you know, I, I, throughout the years, I try to do it myself. You know, regardless what choice I decide to do, good or bad, I was trying to do it myself and I kept feeling. You know, I always say this, that the darkest hour, man, will go to God. And that's what I did. And I, I, I know that wasn't easy for you. At, at that point in time, were you threatened by your fellow police officers? Oh, yes, I was. Uh, prior to me being arrested, you know, when, the, when people know the FBI was around, I was working with a particular officer in my, my uh, infamous narcotics squad that I had brought in. One of those uh, those officers working with, uh, we were drive. I was actually driving an unmarked police car, and he was, you know, he, everyone was always uh, suspicious of me because they thought I was talking to the FBI. And I remember pulling to a lot, and um, I had to go to relieve myself, go to the bathroom. And you know, I pulled into a vacant lot, and I got out the car, I went to an isolated area, relieve myself, and my phone rang, and I answered my phone. And it was nobody but, you know, somebody in my family, whatever. And I hung up the phone. I got back into the car. And when I got in my car, uh, my partner had his gun pointed at me. And it shocked me because I've been involved in at least three shootings, you know. And my muscle memory means, you know, the threat imminent, you're supposed to use deadly force. But I was right. caught. I was, I was a deer in headlights, you know, at that, that time. I'm like, if I shoot this guy, he's a cop. You know, what should I do? You know, I, mean, I was stuck. You know, I mean, this guy got his gun pointed in my ribs. And I said, what's going on, man? He was like, you know, Fez is around. We don't know what's going on with you. We scared right now. You're going to tell us something. So, you know, after that point, you know, I, said, we, I immediately shut. The day is over for me, okay? Uh, I went inside headquarters. I went to my supervisor, who was also corrupt. Uh, I told him what, what happened, occurred and with this particular officer. And he told me to get out of the squad. That was his answer to the question. Get out of the squad. Leave. Wow. And, uh, you know, I'll jump from squad to squad watching misconduct. Even to the time I was arrested, my supervisor, I found out later, was corrupt. He got caught in 2016 stealing money out of a house. You know, it's a, cost, a customized practice throughout the narcotics field. Even when their FBI is around, police officers are still going to do what they're going to do. You know, right. um, it's, it's just muscle memory. They don't care. They always think nothing will never happen to them. And the whole situation is this is the second time I was threatened was when I decided to cooperate during the depositions. When I first after I came home in March 20, uh, March 2016, I came home March 3rd, 2016. And as I was Je Jeffrey, hold, hold on one sec. Before before we go there, let's take a, a quick break. Uh, unfortunately, we do need to take a break so our sponsors can be can be heard, um, and then let's resume right where you're right where we're leaving off. This this will be kind of a, a perfect time. Then we can yes. catch start right back up. So yes. we'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
ELPS Private Detective Agency is here to provide you with security and investigative services. Our specialties include criminal defense, surveillance, security consulting, loss prevention investigations, and more. ELPS Private Detective Agency is a dynamic team of professionals with over 30 years of experience. No case is too small, too large, or too difficult. We're licensed, bonded, and insured. Visit ELPSPDA.com on the web or call us at 877-SEE-THAT. ELPS Private Detective Agency. Fighting theft, fraud, and crime, one case at a time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to is there really truth and justice for all to reach jeff stein or his guest today please call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or you can send an email to jstein at elpspda.com now back to is there really truth and justice for all welcome back with uh, jeffrey uh, Jeffrey was just about to tell us um, so about some depositions and how he's currently trying to right the wrong and, and working with uh, the DA's office and um, the new DA. So, Jeffrey, go ahead and pick right back up from where you left off. Okay. Now, when I came home, you know, I had time to think about the plan I was going to do as far as, you know, my redemption is correcting all of the, the wrongs I've done throughout my career. Uh as soon as I touched ground, I reached out to a particular civil rights lawyer who has history with us named Michael Pelleggi. Uh this, this lawyer back in 2000 filed numerous lawsuits against us through his clients for misconduct with what we were doing. Uh, I knew to reach out to him. Um, that, you know, if I, was, I decided if I was going to stick my neck out there, I wanted to stick my neck out there with someone who had purpose, who understood what I was trying to do and, you know, wanted to have me succeed as well as they succeed in getting things done. Once I reached out to Michael Pelleggi, uh, he in turn reached out to Larry Krasner. At this time, Larry Krasner was the uh, civil rights attorneys. Uh, I just wanted them to hear me out. They came to my home. Uh, Larry came with his partner, Lloyd. I sat there with my mother. Uh, uh, the came was Michael Pelleggi, Larry Krasner, and his partner, Lloyd. I gave court. You know, when I'm in gay court, they gave me the stage like I'm doing now. And I explained to him in detail what was going on throughout my career. Things that that Larry, you know, confirmed in his mind and things that he did not know. And I remember at the comment and in the conversation, he, you know, he shook my hand and he said, you know, you, you're doing the right thing. You know, God bless you. And, 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 and you know, whatever plan that I had, you totally changed it. And we had another meeting where uh, I think a, a few weeks later where I went to his office and met all the rest of the civil rights attorneys and I uh, had a chance to talk to him. And they were amazed. You know, it was like, you know, giving them valid information that was very valuable to what they needed to push forward and what they were trying to do. And uh, the deposition started in the month of uh, September. Uh, 
You know, I remember seeing the city solicitor. I pro se, you know, I didn't have money for a lawyer, you know, and I know I was defending in a lot of these civil rights cases. And, you know, my my representation was dotted in my mind. You know what I'm saying? And and people want to hear to finally hear the truth. So, you know, I remember sitting that very first day and I was talking and I think strongly believe the city solicitors were hit, was not expecting what I was going to say. And this, in their minds, the game just changed. And uh, I laid it all out and let them know how things were done in the narcotics field unit. And, you know, when I said things, I said my name first. I did it, but I did it with them. And I broke them down on how articulation is established, misuse of conscious performance, uh, particular cases. One was, was, was Michael Pelleggi's Kareem Turan, where, where he was falsely arrested, did 13 years in jail. Uh, we talked two days uh, fully of that investigation uh, done with a particular police officer, Monaghan, who forced me to, you know, asked me to lie about a situation going into a location that he wanted a probable cause to go into. Cause we already wanted it prior to a warrant. Well, you know, within the, the following month, the, the next day we met up because, you know, they spread the depositions out. Uh I was intimidated by one of the members of my squad. You know, he sat close to me. Now, mind you, I remember when one of them put a gun to me. So the other officer, when I was out on lunch, felt that he wanted to sit so close to me. He was in full uniform. He had got promoted supervisor. His name was Michael Spicer. He sat so close to me, I could have touched him the back of his neck. That was, this, that was designed to let me know that, listen, this is bigger than you. You can say what you want to say, but it's never going to come out the way you want it to come out. You know, and... Me seeing him sit so close to me and with his gun, you know, I knew at that point that it was a form of intimidation. You know, it was slight, but it was a form because I was I was aware of how things work because I worked along with him. Uh, I reported Larry was sitting right across the table from me, you know, and uh, and then he reported to the judge, the civil rights judge of Paul S. Diamond, which later uh, warned counsel about the conduct of these officers about, you know, intimidation of witnesses, even if they were their co-defendants. But, you know, they hadn't got in their head yet where Officer Lichardello, uh, days later, intimidated another witness in the deposition. Again, there was no, these guys were known for what they're doing, the intimidation to throw people off of, of cooperating with the authorities against them. And Police Officer Lichardello actually was working. He pulled up on a guy that was a, actually complaining uh, that had a lawsuit against him and he basically intimidated him in his police car. You know, he rolled up alongside him. They had a conversation. And that guy reported to Michael Pelleggi. And uh, when he pointed to Michael Pelleggi, Michael had enough. He said, listen, we're going to go to the judge. I found out later uh, when I, my, during my second course, uh, second deposition that, you know, uh, I believe this was the third deposition at the time where they had addressed the, uh, the, uh, the judge, and the judge had enough of it. He had enough of the foolishness. Uh, he put a uh, protection order and added me as a complainant witness, uh, added me as a defendant slash witness to, to protect me and my interest that when these guys try to do something to me, it would be basically, you know, you're intimidating a witness. This guy's now a witness. Even though he's a defendant, he's still a witness in the situation. And for me to have a, a, a federal protection order against Active police officers, unprecedented, you know, these guys are still working, you know, have jobs, you know, as of right now. But, you know, 
just things I had to deal with since I've been home. And I found out later that, you know, private investigators were hired by the other side to watch me and, and, and track my movement when I was, when I wasn't working, I'm not working, but when I was home and, uh, I found out that through my, uh, my lawyer, when my lawyer, I met with my lawyer and he said, listen, man, you gotta be careful out here. You got guys following you around. These ain't the feds. These are private investigators. They trying to find out where you are, you know, what's going on. And I knew I seen cars sitting around my house, but I didn't expect nothing of it, you know, but I knew it was something was going on. And, and I, I reported to get to the judge and listen, these guys are harassing me sitting around my house. You know, I'm not doing anything. I'm doing the right thing. I don't know what to do, you know. And, um, you know, as time went on, I still kept pushing forward. And uh, after the fifth day, uh, the city decided to settle all the lawsuits. You know, I think it started out with 150 lawsuits. By the time I was done, it was it was close to 400 lawsuits, you know, these things that, you know, the people don't know, you know, what's going on. And I went, by the time I got finished talking, the city said, listen, we're going to start selling. And they'll tell you, well, it's cheaper for us to actually settle the lawsuits based on the time we would have to spend on processing the lawsuits through the courts. That was all a cop. I knew that was all game because they wanted to protect the qualified immunities, particular police officers in the situations. But a lot of these lawsuits have been settled, uh, are still being currently settled now, and still other lawsuits are still coming forward. Uh, once my deposition was over, I took it to another level. Uh, I wanted to do affidavits. I wanted to reach out to the lawyers and look at these 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 people now that I call victims of wrongful convictions that I have arrested amongst members of my squad have arrested. I started doing affidavits, correcting telling the truth of what was lying about these these arrests that I was making. And I started with the federal system first, which I was dealing with a, a major organization called the Courtney Carter, James Patterson investigation that was done by a uh, multi-task force, us with the DEA. And uh, there was a lot of lying in there. You know, uh, we met how we all met and we discussed about robbing these particular drug dealers for their cash and how we articulated uh, investigations about, you know, seeing transactions would never occur, jump out jobs, which means we ride along a guy and we see a guy, we jump out and we grab him, we articulate how we made the rest. A lot of those different things, I, I came forward and I did a number of affidavits. And from my result of that, a lot of those cases are sitting waiting for to be heard for PCRA hearings where they get a, a, a chance to get a new trial. Others have one guy, guy gave back 14 years. I did another affidavit for a guy in the federal system, a, a defense association out of federal defense association out of Pittsburgh. A guy was on death row. He came off a of death row. He get a chance to get a new shot of, you know, uh, get a new trial. And uh, I think when, when it comes down to, Larry Krasnoff, they had five days of deposition. I gave them the blueprint of identifying corruption, what to look for in the paperwork. You know, they had enough to where he looked at all these narcotics officers jobs and he started overturning these cases. And it, it, it mounted up to over uh, 1500 cases. You know, his record at over 4000 people has been released since I came home. One of which was uh, Meek Mills. You know, uh, this kid was arrested by Reggie Graham in 2007, who admitted that he 
he abused this guy, ripped his braids out. And uh, when I seen him going through that with Brinkley, I knew I could help him because I knew I stole a Reggie Grant. You know, this is a guy who who was manipulating the federal government about, you know, say he's a whistleblower. But, he, he, you know, he was telling the truth, but he wasn't admitting what he was doing. Uh, he was actually stealing, too. Uh, well, I looked at McMill's paperwork and he was falsely arrested, you know, misusing of a, a, a confidential informant that was corrupted, uh, you know, accusations that he, they said he did, which I believe he never did. Uh, this, kid, this kid was beat severely. You know, I'll, I'll leave the rest of that story for him to tell you. But the kid has a very interesting, at times, blistering story about what they did to him. You know, he was wrongfully convicted out of out of many other people in his situations in Philadelphia of a corrupt system. And he suffered for a long time. And hopefully I pray that he gets some relief in the end. You know, how to, no matter how people feel about this kid, I'm telling you right now, he was wrongfully convicted. He was manipulated by the corrupt system of, of law. Well, for all our listeners, this is um, the Malik Mills case is, is hot and heavy in the Philadelphia region. And you heard it here first. We only have about, Jeffrey, about two minutes, so I'd really love to have you come back maybe next week and we, we can sure. continue, but we'll, we'll talk up offline about that. Um, since we only have about two minutes, do you want to talk? I know you're, you're working on writing a book and you're working on a podcast. Again, we are, yes. both you and I, our, our, our point is to educate educate everybody and help fix the system because it's broken. And I know, you know, we want to create or, or work on the criminal justice reform so we don't have these issues going forward. So and, do you want to take two minutes and just talk about the, yes, your book yes, and the podcast yes, and yes. then we can pick up next week maybe or the week after? Sure. No problem. Uh, the book that I'm coming out with is actually being edited now is in this first beginning stages. It's a book that depicts my life, you know, uh, young, black and shiny. You know, again, I was young. Who I am was black and shiny. How the police department made me feel. And you're going to get a walk through my life, you know, my personal life, how, you know, a battle and personal issues make me no different from the next person. You know, and the battle I did with corruption, you know, fighting both sides of the war, you know, me being corrupt in the legal side of, you know, doing the right thing. war, The battle I was facing throughout the peers and I was working with and uh, me going to prison and me my redemption. And uh, the best way I can describe the book series is actually look forward to be three books is you're going to get uh, training day, Serpico and Shaft and Shaft comes in. I'm a different, you know, I was told I was a different type of hero. There's actually standing for justice for everyone, you know, standing against the injustice, even with the police department as well as, you know, the people in the public, you know, Police department must be held accountable for what he does, you know, because people are screaming out for the truth. And I'm going to give them the truth because I plan on continuing doing this. But the last thing I want to tell you is um, I have a podcast that's coming out, which I'm actually doing with a, uh, a lawyer that I met during the courses I've been home. Name is Paul Jubis. Uh, the podcast is called Hashtag Philly Freedom. And we're actually going to actually talk about uh, it's the same thing we're talking about here. We're going to have guests, people speaking that have been victimized by the police department and they need to have a stage to talk about. And it's about what solutions, you know, the revolution is, is, is podcast. When, it, when I say revolutions, podcast is, is, is going to be battled out by paper and in the courts, not about guns and fighting and, and differences of, you know, people using some type of force to get their point across. You know, it's not going to be done that way. You know, you know, reform is done by paperwork, Paperwork and the courts identifying Je the corruption Jeffrey, of the police department. 
I, I really appreciate it. this past hour has flown by so fast. We, we need to, we need to close, but um, we're going to pick up, we're going to talk offline. We're, we're going to have another episode, hopefully next week or the week after, because your story is fascinating. Our listeners love it. And I, I want to thank you for taking, taking the time to be with us. I want to thank the listeners for listening. Um, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to as we continue to increase our listener base. Uh, we appreciate your positive reviews. And until next week, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? We can be heard Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please join host Jeff Stein for another edition of the program next week.